Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I am doing great because tonight we're talking about some of my favorite non-plant organisms, the fireflies or lightning bugs or whatever you call those little beetles that have wonderful flashy lights at the tip of their abdomen. Now, I know this is a plant podcast and don't worry, you're going to find out the connection as we discuss this amazing topic with my guest today. Joining us is Dr. Sarah Lewis, who has dedicated her career to understanding these organisms and what needs to be done to ensure that we can continue to enjoy their light displays well into the future. The connections with plants aren't always obvious, and some of them are in desperate need of more study, but I'm going to let her tell you all about that. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Sarah Lewis. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Sarah Lewis, it is so exciting to have you on the podcast. I can't wait to pick your brain, but how about we start off with an introduction? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. So first, let me say, um, Matt, thank you so much for having me on In Defense of Plants. Of I'm very excited about this. And hmm, who am I? I'm Sarah <laughs> Lewis. I am a professor of biology at Tufts University, which is in Boston. Uh, and I am also the co-chair of the uh, Firefly Specialist Group of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Excellent. And of course, we are here today to really talk about your work in the world of fireflies. But where did it all kind of start for you? I mean, were you just a nature nut as a kid growing up? Or did you kind of find this along your edu education or career route that you really wanted to work with these incredible beetles? Yeah, good question. So, you know, like everybody else, I feel like my, uh, it's kind of been a, a long, strange trip, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's always a, a, an indirect path to, to get where you, where you're, you think you want to go. Right. And, um, yeah, I kind of grew up a wild child, you know, I spent a lot of time <laughs> in the woods and, um, that's really, you know, that's, that's really where I learned to love nature. But, um, I wasn't always a firefly fanatic. I actually did my um, PhD work on coral reef ecology. Oh, wow. And yeah, so, you know, really thinking about that ecosystem and the interactions in that ecosystem. So I really started out as a community ecologist and I really started out underwater also. Interesting. And so, um, you know, one of the first things that I, I needed to do, because I was really interested in this highly diverse tropical community and that mm. uh, particularly interested in herbivory and the role that herbivorous fish played in um, kind of mediating the interactions between like seaweeds and corals in the benthic community. And hmm. so, um, you know, I was pretty familiar. I grew up in New England, so I was really pretty familiar with New England seaweeds, but I didn't know anything about tropical seaweeds. And so <laughs> I took a, uh, a tropical phycology course in the Bahamas, and um, part of that was at the Duke Marine Station in nice. Beaufort, North Carolina. And um, so we were, you know, collecting algae and um, keen it out and, you know, uh, pressing it, making herbarium sheets and everything. So, so we spent a lot of time looking at small bits of plants. and. Um, <laughs> One of the exciting things that happened as I was, um, you know, sort of just getting into tropical phycology is we discovered a new species of red mm. algae. I know it was so cool. Like I had never even imagined that you could discover a new right. species. I was, you know, like a first year graduate student. I was like, what did I know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were diving uh, off the coast. We were, um, there are these, so most of the, um, offshore of North Carolina is pretty soft substrate, but there are these rocky ledges that are uh, exposed rocks that are, they're pretty deep. There's like a, about a hundred feet deep. And so mm -hmm. it's, 
and it's North Carolina. So it's like pretty murky. It's dark. Yeah. It's cold. <laughs> so we were diving on these rock ledges and, um, you know, sort of looking around, trying to see what you can see, collecting things, stuffing them in your bag. And then um, just about as we were just about to come back up to the surface, all of a sudden I like out of the corner of my eye, I see this thing waving in the, you know, waves down there. And it looks a little different. Mm. Like, huh, what is that? And so I pick it up, I put it in my bag, come up to the surface, I show it to my professor. He says, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that before. So it was really cool. Like over the next couple of months, uh, we got to work together um, to describe this new species that we, uh, Helminthocladia andersoni is what we named it. And, you know, it was... um, it was really interesting. I got to spend a lot of time, like, you know, making cross sections hmm. and you know, diagramming little parts of the, uh, you know, reproductive structures of algae and really, really got into it. So that was, that was cool. That was my first, like, maybe my last, like, really, really, <laughs> um, so rad, <laughs> so to speak, into, uh, <laughs> like, plant taxonomy. Wow. So that was fun. And then, you know, I spent the next, I don't know, like three or four years pretty much underwater in uh, Belize. Um, the Smithsonian has a tiny field station off the coast of Belize. They have a bigger one in Panama. But the Belize field station is cool because it's right on the Belizean barrier reef. And so I spent my um, PhD trying to understand the interactions between these um, really, really abundant fish that are in the tropics that are not in the temperate zone, and they are they're herbivorous fish, and um, you know what they like to eat and mm. how they affect the interactions between pretty fast growing seaweeds and pretty slow growing corals. <laughs> And so um, that was that was that was kind of fun, and also had a lot to do with plants because yeah. um, one of the things that you notice when you go underwater on a coral reef is there's often like really really sparse plant life, right? Yeah. So what is going on here? You know, here's this you know beautiful clear ocean and all the sunlight, and um, it turns out that these uh, tropical fish, they're basically, you know, like lawnmowers. They're coming through <laughs> parts of the reef where they feel safe. So there needs to be some structure there. They come through and they basically graze on everything. And wow. so one of the things that I got to do was to uh, do an experiment where we built these fences, uh, where we excluded herb, like we used chicken wire to exclude, <laughs> you know, let's just call it fish wire. Yeah, high tech. Uh, yeah, to exclude the larger herbivorous fish and then, you know, monitor the change in community structure over the course of like the next four months. And sure. man, it was amazing how quickly things changed. So oh, lots wow. and lots of new new species um, recruited in, lots of things that were actually there that were like hidden down in this really, really scruffy stuff that the technical term is algal turf. <laughs> But um, <laughs> really scruffy stuff, you can like filamentous algae, you can barely see this yeah. stuff. And so all of a sudden, like within four days, this stuff starts growing up and it's oh, wow. like, you know, um, the meristem is changing from like a single apical meristem to a whole row of, of growing cells huh. and they're like leafing out into these fan-shaped blades. And wow, it was really, it was like, you know, kind of for... My first like big large scale experiment it was kind of jaw dropping yeah. results. It was like what? That's wild. So um, yeah, plants. Um, and <laughs> the only other story I'll tell you about plants is that one of the things that I discovered is that there were these refuges in different parts of of tropical reefs, like far away from shelter where fish could find a place to hide from their own predators, there are luxurious growths of plants. And so I would just go around and collect some of these plants and then bring them to places where where there were um, parrotfish and surgeonfish and put them out in like, you know, rows. And then I'd uh, lie there underwater with my clipboard. (laughs) Count the number of bites that uh, fish were taking of different plants. And one of the coolest things is that um, there was this one particular plant. It's called Padina, and it's a brown alga. And you never see it on coral reefs. Hmm. But in some places, it's pretty abundant. So you collect it from some place where it's growing luxuriously. You bring it over to a coral reef where there's a lot of... um, 
parrotfish. And it's like, you it's almost like giving candy to a bunch of kids because <laughs> you can actually see the fish's eyes like light up. Huh? They're so excited to see this plant. And you, I never fed them out of my hand, but I probably could have trained them to eat wow. it out of my hand. They were just so excited. It was like candy for them. And you put it out and, you know, you might back up like, I don't know, five feet or six feet away from them and then just hold still. And then they come right up to it. And man, they would just like, tear into that stuff and it was gone <laughs> in a matter of minutes so Dang. they had really it was it was pretty easy to figure out like what kinds of plants they liked and what kind of plants they didn't like yeah. and um to look at since the podcast is called in defense of plants to look <laughs> at the different kinds of like you know the the morphological defenses and the chemical defenses sure. that plants have against these um really really abundant and voracious herbivores Wow, what an experience. And I mean, I'm sure plenty of people listening have done field work underwater, but field work underwater sounds a very vastly different experience, but awesome to see these dynamics playing out at different scales and different ecosystems. But just hearing how much that photosynthetic organism sets the standard for what's going on behavior wise and, and probably ripples through the whole ecosystem. But I also love this idea of like, I've snorkeled before and seen those filamentous algae, the turf you're talking about. And how much it can change when that herbivory pressure is removed. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, and how quickly, you were talking about plasticity earlier and um, how quickly that happens. It's huh. like, you know, these things are just hunkering down, waiting for a break. And it's not like they're just, you know, it's not like just grass growing from short to long grass. They're completely <laughs> changing their morphology when there's uh, when the conditions change to take advantage of, you know, like all the sunlight and all the, like they really get out there and they also get reproductive, whereas the um, the turf form, they're just, they're not even reproducing. They're just wow. like barely hanging on. And so I'm assuming going back to what you said about describing a new species, those reproductive structures probably are pretty important for delineating algae. Yeah, alga. yeah. So some of the things that are hunkering down in these tropical algal turfs actually had originally been described as completely different genera. <laughs> Love that. So... Um, when it wasn't until you know we had a chance to see wow well you know you protect them from herbivory they change their form and they become this other thing hmm. so um yeah that was kind of cool uh you know it really it it uh really inspired me to think about plasticity in a whole new way nice. so yeah. i'm with you on that very important in those sessile orga organisms especially but what brought you on to land into mm -hmm. the arthropod uh, hmm. realm yeah yeah well you know um Hmm. So, I guess, to be honest, when I finished my PhD, I was, two things. One is, I was kind of tired of being wet all the time. <laughs> so, you know, you, you when you work, you're basically like pretty much 24-7, you're underwater. And yeah. um, I was working in shallow enough water that I wasn't limited by like, you know, bottom time. And mm. so, um, yeah, I was in at dawn, I was in at dusk, I was in all day. And I've never been colder in my life than I was in the tropics, Oof. like spending all that time, even in pretty warm water, just yeah. sucks the heat out of your body. So anyways, I'd come, I'd wear my wetsuit, and then I'd come and just lie in the sun in my wetsuit and then go back <laughs> in the water. It was, it was fun. I good. am a huge wimp with cold water, so you are, uh, the, the empathy here is, is big. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. So, um, so part of it was just, you know, I was looking for something that was a little drier. And then also I had gotten mostly because of the sort of, um, well, coral reef fish have some pretty interesting, um, uh, mating behavior going on. And I got really interested in sexual selection and, hmm. um, you know, what makes some individuals, um, either more attractive as mates or better competitors for mates. And, you know, why is it that, you know, it goes in one direction, the males compete and the females choose and not the other direction. And so, um, I was trying to decide if it was, well, actually, I realized pretty quickly, it was not really a smart thing to work on sexual selection in fish. Hmm. Um, because, um, yeah, just really, really hard to track individuals, mm. really, really hard to, you know, do any studies in the lab. And so um, I actually, it was pretty accidental, I have to say, that hmm. I got interested in fireflies. And here's how it happened. I was waiting. I lived in North Carolina. We lived out in the country and I was sitting on the back porch with my dog and one evening. It was actually, it wasn't even evening. It was like afternoon. And Aww. so it was one of those thunderstorms that rolls through, right? And 
sky got dark, really cloudy thunder in the distance. And all of a sudden, there's like these fire. We never mowed our lawn because we were renting this house. Nice. We're graduate students. Yeah. Natural. The grass was pretty long. And so all of a sudden, like these fireflies just came out of the grass around us. And it was like, what is going on here? Like there's all these fireflies here. And I feel like I... To me, that was like the first time I had seen them ever. Yeah. I, I just didn't. I'm sure they were around when I was a kid. Most people have like really, um, you know, very nostalgic about memories they had as their childhood memories of fireflies. I have none. <laughs> I was a graduate student when I first saw fireflies. And so, yeah, it was that was it. It was like, you know, what is going on here? You know, I started like, you know, look as you do, you know, you look into the literature, try to figure out what's, what do we know about these guys? And it was like, um, I ran into um, lots of work that had been done by a professor at the University of Florida, Jim Lloyd, and mm. um, started, you know, just reading everything that he wrote. And I spent a lot of time in the library. I finally just like, you know, wrote to him and said, you know, <laughs> help, can you, you know, tell me what's going on here? And why don't we know about like what happens after the lights go out, you know, and he'd done all this work on flash communication, you know, what about mating? What's yeah. going on? And so Jim was really, really nice and very encouraging. He came to, to, uh, to Duke and gave a talk actually, which was really, really great. Nice. And, um, so then I decided, to sort of switch gears as a once I got my PhD and I started working on insects because huh they're like well they're super small usually <laughs> and they're really convenient you can keep them in the lab nice. for the most part not yeah. fireflies necessarily but other insects and you know they're um, yeah they have really interesting behaviors and um they communicate on multiple channels they're just like yeah i got to i really fell in love with insects and um and i had all these questions about fireflies that i wanted to huh. answer and so that's really kind of what started it and i've been working now uh, my students and i at tufts have been working on fireflies for hmm, about three decades nice um, and <laughs> you know i feel super lucky to be able to study such a charismatic organism right yeah. like they have to be the most charismatic mini fauna on earth right? i'd buy that yeah that seems reasonable so you know and many people there's so many people who don't really like insects but i have never met a single person who doesn't love fireflies and right. that's like all over the world like everybody loves fireflies Aww. and that's kind of a cool thing yeah so um, you know, when you invited me to do this episode, I was very honored, of course. And oh. also, I spent some time over the past few weeks kind of <laughs> pondering, like, okay, so how do plants and fireflies intersect? Yes. And, you know, it's not, wasn't immediately obvious to me, but <laughs> I am proud to say that I could come up with, like, a... <laughs> Several different ways that plants and fireflies intersect. I don't know if you're interested in hearing. Uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons I reached out. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. Obviously, I I love any time I get to dive into some subject that's you know tangential to what I like, but just teaches me new things about organisms that I'm very excited about. And I love that story. I just want to before we move into the depth of it, but. I, I, I hear a lot of people getting scared of specializing and, and they're talking of that at like the undergraduate level or just their first job. Like, I don't want to get locked in, but I mean, you are living proof that if your curiosity takes you somewhere, you can follow that thread. It may not be the easiest transition to make, but that's, that's so good for people to hear. Yeah, totally. That's a really important point. And, um, thanks for, for bringing that up. It's, it really is, you know, um, it's always a good idea to follow your passion. Um, it's not always possible, yeah. but sometimes the stars just align and um, you get lucky. <laughs> and I feel like I just really got lucky and I'm very, very grateful for that. To, um, I had mentors who were you know, willing to, to go with the flow and, well, let me go with the flow. And <laughs> um, and it's it's that's a really special thing. So it's awesome. great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you did it because again, your your work is very amazing and, and, and filling a lot of large gaps in our understanding of these organisms. But 
when you say firefly lightning bug whatever the colloquialism you grew up calling them um you know i grew up thinking it was just one species and then i got a book on them and it realized oh i was wrong so this is a diverse group of beetles right yeah so you know that is really a common misconception (laughs) and um Maybe it's not surprising because a lot of times people just see like, you know, the sparks in the night, the sure, silent yeah. sparks, and they all look the same, right? Well, not exactly, but you, it's it's understandable that you might think you've seen one kind of firefly, you've seen them all. But it turns out that there's a couple thousand different species in wow. the firefly family, um, and they're really diverse. They have like these incredibly diverse life histories and behaviors. The way they look is completely different. And that's a really cool thing. And so, um, you know, here in the U.S., we call them fireflies, we call them lightning bugs. Um, but in other parts of the world, they're also in the same family. But there are glowworm fireflies mm. um, in, in most of Europe. They're glowworms instead of like the flashing fireflies that we find so attractive um and so there's a lot of a lot of different kinds of fireflies and so that's that's a that's a really big deal another thing that is um a really big misconception about fireflies that um that a lot of people have that is again uh, totally understandable is most people think of the um like fireflies mean summertime right mm. so you only see them in the summer that's when they must be what their life cycle is they come out in the summer and they disappear right and they come out the next summer and they disappear but most people don't realize that the vast majority of the firefly life cycle is actually spent underground hmm. all the fireflies in north america have uh, terrestrial juvenile stages, larvae, right? Okay. And it's not like they're just, you know, a couple weeks as larvae, a couple weeks as adults, then it's over. They actually spend most of their life uh, in like uh, northern latitudes in the U.S. Firefly larvae spend two years overwintering in the larval wow. form before they come out like in the, in the early summer and they might spend two weeks, maybe huh. if they're like a particular long-lived, they might spend a month as an adult <laughs> before they, you know, mate, lay eggs, and then two years underground wow. in the winter. So it's kind of a crazy long life cycle. And yeah. that's a kind of, um, that's important for two reasons. The first is that uh, it means that you have to start thinking about the ground and the Mm. soil and the things that live in the soil as part of the home of fireflies. It's not just the places where the adults are displaying and flying around with their, you know, flashy um, courtship behavior. (laughs) So if you want to make sure that fireflies stick around, we need to think about not just preserving the adult display habitat, but also preserving the, uh, places where the larvae and the eggs and the pupae, like all those juvenile stages, where <laughs> all of those life stages can thrive. Yeah. Vital so, perspectives, <laughs> big time. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit broader than just, you know, where you like, hey, they're in this tree, so let's save this tree. Right, right. Um, and I hear that a lot uh, in this world. You know, I give talks, I, I interact with different groups, and you hear people talk about butterflies, the adult life, but everyone wants to squash the babies because they're eating their plants. And that's, to me, I'm like, no, you need that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's important to communicate that. Don't shame people because I, I get the understanding, like, oh, I just invested all this time in a garden. Why is something eating it? Well, that something might one day become a firefly or a beautiful butterfly or moth, you know, those sorts of things. You got to protect the babies first. Yeah, so that, you know, the whole idea, I feel like somehow the beauty of a butterfly or the, you know, the wonder that is inspired by a a display of fireflies kind of makes people forget everything that they ever learned about insect metamorphosis (laughs) because, you know, um, they just don't really even stop to think about the life cycle that went into creating this adult. Right, right. And so thinking about that, you know, you start talking about juvenile habitat or the soil and and all of this is based on places these organisms have to live and and, and eat and and play out their life cycle. 
obviously plants are having to enter into this equation. So this is a perfect segue to start talking about some of the wonderful, and I hope I didn't put you on the spot for this, for the time we've been communicating to stress too much about the content, but what did we turn up here? I mean, what, why would I invite a firefly <laughs> specialist to talk on a plant podcast? I mean, there has to be a connection, right? <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. So, um, Here's what I came up with. Awesome. So <laughs> not all fireflies communicate with light flashes, but a lot of them do. The ones that do, so these bioluminescent fireflies, um, they actually evolved in order to, they evolved to, uh, to uh, these courtship signals. Okay, let me it's start over again. All good. So um, one of the reasons that fireflies use bioluminescence is to find mates and they evolved uh, to fly around at night and to detect these flashes of light or these glows of light against a dark background mm. and so that works out really well until you realize how much brighter our nights have become in really just the past hundred years or yeah. so right so um, light pollution is getting to be, you know, more and more on people's radars because um, artificial light at night, too much artificial light at night, has a negative impact on human health, <laughs> a negative impact on lots of different nocturnal animals, and it is in it is especially impactful on fireflies because <laughs> they're trying they it obscures the signals that they're using to find their mates. And so we have um, a recent PhD student in my lab, her name is Avalon Owens, has um, been looking at how light pollution affects US fireflies, so um, the common fireflies that we see around in, um, in the US. And it turns out that it has a lot of effects. It makes males flash less. Hmm. It makes females um, less responsive to the male signals. Yeah. So it basically like cuts short the conversation that normally goes on between male and female fireflies. This is not a good thing for firefly reproductive success. Yeah. So I'm getting around to plants here. It's quite all right. This is important for here's people to hear. It, here's how it goes. So... You know, it turns out that one of the ways that you can, it's, it, I mean, you can obviously, you know, and we do this all the time. We ask people to sort of minimize their uh, light footprint, the, the, how much light they have on, or if they can, to minimize the um, lights they have on outside at night, to put them on timers, to put them on dimmers, to um, put them on motion detectors. So, mm. you know, those bright security lights with LEDs that people have on the backs of their houses, those are really, really bad for fireflies. They're just going to stop short any kind of courtship that's going on. Right. And so plants, yes, mm. plants actually turn out to be a really, really great way of um, to create a light barrier that oh. blocks the... Um, amount of light that's coming into firefly habitat. So if you have a if you have fireflies in your backyard and you have a neighbor that has an annoying security light, and I know a lot of people oh, have yeah. complained to me about this, um, you can think about planting, you know, shrubs or trees or, you know, other kinds of, um, yeah. So plants make a great barrier to reduce the impact of lights that you can't control mm. in firefly when you're trying to um, promote a good firefly habitat. Oh, that's great. And I love that because it encourages people to plant plants. And I know my partner, Sarah, worked on a lot of dark sky event uh, sort of information for these sorts of ideas. And one of the things that really came up to me, because I've always been under the impression like, oh, you light up a space, that's security. There's really no evidence to prove that lights do anything to make things more safe. Most of the crime people are trying to prevent happens in daylight. So it really doesn't increase security anyway. And then you think of all of the downstream effects. I mean, like you said, human health to just disrupting these biological processes. And I, I, it's, it's always hard for me to kind of contend with like, I used to see fireflies all the time as a kid and now I never see them. But then that's the person with the giant spotlight on their garage that just lights up their entire yard. <sighs> I got some work yeah, to do. Yeah, no, it's in, and you know, I'm really glad. Um, it's really important. The dark, uh, international dark sky association, IDA dark sky is doing really, really great work looking, um, at not just the like human effects and the, um, 
the astronomical effects of um, light pollution, but also looking at the ecological effects of light pollution. And yeah, one of the one of the top threats to fireflies around the world. We we did a survey um, in 2020 where we asked firefly experts from all over the the globe, you know, what did they consider to be the the top threats to fireflies in their country? And um, the first the top culprit, of course, was habitat loss mm. because um, so many of the places where fireflies thrive are being, you know, urbanized, developed. Um, agriculture is a is eating up a lot of firefly habitat. Um, drought, um, mm. and the second biggest threat that people mentioned is light pollution. Wow. So, you know, you look at some of the. Uh, the NASA shots of the Earth at night, and they uh, look at the, you know, Europe and the United States. It's like you know, Eastern United States is all light at night, yeah. and um, yeah. So so that's a that's a really big problem, and it's, I think it's gotten worse because you know LED lights were supposed to be really great because they were um, they are energy efficient, and so right. that's. Excellent, and but they also tend to be um, very broad spectrum in terms of the light, um, the colors of light that they emit, and so um, they they really and they're also really bright. Yeah. They're much brighter than they need yeah, to be. Yeah. So they're kind of blinding, you know, to humans. They're blinding, and um, you can only imagine what they're like to like a, an insect that is used to has evolved in order to see. Um, pretty dim lights at night. Those yeah. lights are really blinding. And um, some of the work that Avalon has done has looked at, you know, whether we could fine tune um, lighting like to particular wavelengths to mm. see whether there would be a, you know, one really great color of light that would be, you know, great for all insects um, and great for fireflies too. And it turns out that there really isn't. Like different, um, different species have different kinds yeah. of... Um, their eyes are built differently and they're sensitive to different kinds of light. And so the broad spectrum white LEDs are the worst. Sure. Those should definitely be like on dimmers, on timers, <laughs> or turn the switch off. Right. Um, but, you know, the the one that was least disruptive to fireflies, and this is one that we, um, in the materials that we put out for firefly conservation, we recommend that if you can't turn off your light or dim your light, to use it, um, to use the dimmest possible red light hmm. that you can. So red light is good for humans. It doesn't destroy our night vision. You can still see the stars. Yeah. And it also turns out to be... Um, the least impactful still you know it's not sure. great it's the least impactful on firefly courtship communication so that's a cool thing yeah no important findings and i mean any step we can take in the right direction is better than nothing right totally <laughs> or more of the totally. same um totally. but what else did you come up with i mean okay so, so we've, got, we've got the screening effect good barriers yeah yeah, yeah. light barriers plants are so important as light barriers yes and um yeah, so here's another thing is that <clears throat> it turns out that some of the most spectacular fireflies are the synchronist fireflies of Southeast Asia. Oh. And you've probably heard of these. They um it's a pretty unusual lifestyle. It's kind of just evolved in one group of fireflies um where the males gather in um particular trees along mangrove rivers. Hmm. And and they sit up in the tree and at dusk they begin to flash and first they're kind of flashing randomly bleep, 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 bleep. and then after you know a few minutes they synchronize with one another <laughs> and then they're flashing all together it's like bleep bleep that's amazing bleep, bleep. and they do that in unison flash all night long. Wow. Right? And so they're flashing there, sitting on these um, trees, in order to attract females who are flying around. And the females fly into these, they're often called display trees. Hmm. And um, then some magic happens. We don't exactly know how the females choose which males to approach and mate with. But that's like the, the, um, 
that's like the beacon. Those display trees are like a beacon, and they're usually so so plant. They're a plant, and <laughs> yeah. they are um, usually a particular, not always, but often a particular species of mangrove tree, um, Sonoratia cassiolaris, hmm. I think it is, and um, so they. They and it's a particular. There's a lot of these trees. The ones that the fireflies display in are ones that are located often in a place where they're visually very prominent. So they're way above the canopy compared to the trees around them, and they're usually at a bend in a mangrove river, like a you know inner or outer bend, so that like things flying along the river would see that tree. And they're so these trees are really really important. They're like the display tree for these fireflies. It's um, it's a really big deal because night after night after night they display in the same tree year after year after year. In fact, um, until recently, um, people who were navigating the mangrove rivers at night in their boats without lights would use these firefly display trees as navigation, like lighthouses, <laughs> oh. like na- navigational beacons, because they're always in the same place. Wow. So if you, um, for example, were to come in and cut down the mangrove forest in order to plant a palm oil plantation or something like that, yeah then the fireflies would no longer have access to the display trees and they would need to um, move somewhere else. Dang. So um, for the Southeast Asian fireflies, and, and there's, there are quite a few species in this group of, they're called congregating mangrove fireflies. They're really, really cool. And they depend completely on plants, not for eating, hmm. but for courtship display. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of this. When you think about habitat loss, you get a structural idea in your head and what is forming that structure. It's the plants and and beyond just food, beyond the connectedness of say mycorrhizal networks and such, just the physical presence of these plants creates habitat. And, And that's a beautiful illustration of that. I'm sure literally beautiful illustration of that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, you know, it, it goes back to what I was um, discovering as a, as a graduate student working on coral reefs, which is that it's the structure of the reef, which is made by these, you know, coral plant symbiosis, right? Yeah. Animal plant symbiosis that is the coral animal creates a structure that creates the habitat for everything else, including the fish. And if the, if the corals die, if the, um, if the plants are removed or die, then all the stuff that depends on that, um, it's, you know, they're almost, they're like ecosystem engineers, right? They're, they're building the habitat for all of the rest of the community. Totally. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) just looking at how much of a difference it makes to have a tiny garden instead of a little patch of grass, just in, anecdotal evidence of of observing oh now there's beetles here that i wasn't seeing before it's the proof can be all around you in some form or another (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely so one of the other things that occurred to me (laughs) on the intersection between plants and fireflies is has to do with the larval form of fireflies and as i mentioned Fireflies spend a lot of time in their juvenile stage, it's called the larva, and unlike butterflies, they are not plant eaters in hmm. their juvenile stage. They are carnivorous, and they live down underground. Uh, all of the North American fireflies live underground in their larval stage, and they are voracious predators. They eat um, snails, they eat slugs, they eat earthworms. Hmm. And um, they, um, yeah, and it turns out that one of the functions of light, like one of the functions of bioluminescence, <laughs> one of the functions of firefly bioluminescence is not about romance and mating. It's actual, actually a visual warning sign. Oh. And so it's um, so we think that firefly light first evolved as a warning in the juvenile stage, right? Wow. They're living underground; it's dark, and it's a warning, like it's it's the visual equivalent of shouting out into the <laughs> darkness. I'm toxic. Stay away. 
So these toxins, what are they? Fireflies contain uh, these, um, these toxic chemicals called lucibufagens. Oh. And that's a great name, right? Yeah, Lucibufagen, I like that. <laughs> Lucibufagen. They're related to toad toxins. Okay. So that's the, the bufagen part, but lucia is the firefly part of it. So they're like fireflies version of toad toxins. Nice. And they are, um, so they circulate around in the blood of the firefly larva or adult. And um, they, uh, they, mm, they taste really bad. They're mm. extremely bitter. And the... The um, adult beetles actually, if you handle a firefly, I don't know, have you ever caught a firefly in your hand? And then sort of maybe, or I don't know, maybe you're a kid, and you handle it a little bit too roughly, they give off a kind of smell. I think it smells like sort of burning rubber. Yeah, yeah. And that also, um, if you look carefully at them, once you've mishandled them, I mean, they're still fine, but you can see like these little tiny beads of like little white droplets. Mm -hmm. That's, um, it's called reflex bleeding. And there are particular sites on the firefly body where they, um, which are designed in order to leak out bits of their blood. Huh. That contains this toxin, and there's a volatile part that's that's the smell, and then there's a a, a part that you can taste if you were to touch your tongue <laughs> to one of these droplets. I do not recommend. Yeah, I was gonna you say pass. Home, however, <laughs> I'll believe it because <laughs> because this is compound is extremely toxic to um, vertebrates, so oh. to any insect eating birds or mammals or reptiles. Um, if you Google, for example, firefly toxicosis. Uh, and lizard, oh. you will find a story that was um, came out in the scientific literature a few years, well, quite a few years ago now, that um, this is a really incredible story. This guy had a pet um, bearded dragon, hmm. and it, these are lizards that are quite spectacular, and they're native to Australia, where there aren't very many fireflies. Huh. And um, he was looking for insects to feed his lizard, and he went out and he got a couple of fireflies, and he fed them to the lizard. And the next day, the lizard like completely turned black and died. Ooh. So, um, so yeah, don't eat fireflies. <laughs> don't, eat fireflies. And don't feed them to your lizards. Noted. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, all right. So here's here's how this has to do with plants. I'm excited. Um, so. Fireflies make these lucibufagens. We have no idea where they get these lucibufagens from. Mm. And, you know, there's been, so there's sort of a, a um, the chemical is related to a sort of a cholesterol backbone. And so we, there's some talk that maybe they get them, uh, some speculation sure. that maybe they get them from earthworms or something like that, that they're eating. But um, quite recently, um, a firefly expert named Lynn Faust discovered a whole bunch of fireflies, many different species, feeding on milkweed flowers. Oh. So they were nectaring on the milkweed flowers. They were also kind of like harvesting stuff off the surface of the leaves. And when she brought them into her kitchen uh, with some milkweed roots and put some firefly larvae on them, the firefly larvae actually ate quite a lot of the milkweed rhizome. So, you know, there's a possibility, somebody should look at this, that (laughs) here's a plant defense, right? That is very, very effective against herbivores. And maybe fireflies are actually like hijacking that, metabolizing it, changing the chemical structure of of it a little bit and um, turning it into a toxin that that protects themselves against their own predators. That is cool. Oh, and milkweeds of all plants too. I was like some of my favorite groups, but that is wild. Now I have been lucky enough to see a firefly dipping into a nectary before, but never once thought underground something could be going on there. That is so interesting. 
you seen fireflies dipping into milkweed nectaries or other? Once, milkweed. Uh, oh, I had cool. some common milkweed right off my back porch, and one we, we were very fortunate to have a lot of fireflies in our yard, and one night, I was it was kind of dusk, and it crawled up and just was sticking its head. I got a few pictures. I You know, this is not just me. <laughs> Oops, Believe me, that's uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's it's radio, uh, it's podcast. Okay, so um, just just in case you're interested, or maybe your listeners are interested, yes. um, this would probably be available on something like ResearchGate. Okay, without a uh, paywall, it is a paper that came out in 2014 by um, Lynn Faust uh, and her son Hugh Faust. Oh, nice. And it's called The Occurrence and Behaviors of North American Fireflies on Milkweed. Dang. All right. And it's a compendium <laughs> of a whole bunch of observations, many different species, some some day active, some night active fireflies, and their interaction with milkweed. And so I think there's a lot of um, a lot of potential research right. that could be done there. And Bingo. so if any of your listeners are interested in studying chemical defenses and how they get transferred between plants and animals, there you go. Wow. Yeah. And I am a broken record for this, but here is the importance of these natural history observations. This might not be an experimental, strong statistical, but uh, observations are the jumping off point for more questions and more tests. So bingo. I mean, you, you, you observe it, you write it down. She was very smart in publishing it. This is a perfect door to open for so many listeners. So go forth and explore the world. <laughs> it is. It really is. You know, and tell other people about it because um, you're exactly right. These kind of, you know, natural history backyard observations are the things, that's the the engine that allows scientists to, um, you know, to wonder, first of all, hmm. and then to generate a, a hypothesis and come up with a way of testing that. And that's how knowledge is, you know, that's how we learn stuff. So wonderful. Um, it's it all starts with observations. No other way to, to begin it. Great. I love it. <laughs> Such a good lesson there. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I think those are my three major awesome. ways that I could think of okay, that cool. fireflies and plants intersect. And um, I'll also just say that, you know, I think that um, one of the one of the take home messages here is. As you say, it's kind of the, the interdependence of the natural world, right? right? So, you know, the life around us is multifaceted. And um, it's not just always, you know, we're used to thinking about, you know, um, what animals eat what plants and what animals eat which other animals. It's not always just about the food web, right? It's mm. um, There's chemistry and there's light interactions and all this other stuff that's going on. And so it's a it's a wondrous world out there and it's <laughs> it's uh, it's really cool. It is. And I mean, I, some of my fondest memories are just being out, relaxing on a summer's evening and watching a natural light display that I didn't have to light a match for or anything like that. I mean, cold fire, right? Cold light or whatever they call it. And it's just a spectacle that I hope more and more people can be able to appreciate, protect and, and continue to enjoy because it, it's like you said, there's few people that don't just look in awe and wonder when they finally get to experience it. It is. It really is inspirational. And I'll just mention that, um, you know, I um, was lucky enough to have a chance to write a book about fireflies. It's yes, you were. <laughs> Island Sparks. Um, and it was really like, you know, the title and the book and everything was really um, kind of inspired by my first interaction on that in that nice. North Carolina backyard with my dog, Orpheus. Um, so it's called The Wondrous World of Fireflies. And um, in the book, I really, you know, tell a lot of stories about fireflies and their lives and... Um, it's uh, it, it's intended to be, you know, a, a popular science book. Um, I think it's, I tried to make it easy to, easy to read and it's got really, I'm so lucky to have um, many, many talented firefly photographers contribute um, photographs to the book. So Wonderful. that's, that's a really nice thing. Um, yeah. Where can, where can people pick it up just as a quick plug? Independent bookstores. Perfect. That's near you. Yes. <laughs> uh, or I, I think there's a, a web bookstore.org or something like that. That, yeah, that yeah. actually locates your 
your closest independent bookstore and you can order it online from from them awesome. um i'll also say that you know um i am part of an organization which has a great name it's called fireflyers international Ooh. and um we have a facebook page you can you know join that but also we sponsor a world firefly day every year awesome and it falls on the first weekend of july which this year is july 2nd and 3rd and it's just an opportunity for people around the world to kind of like you know go out and you know look at and appreciate their vocal fireflies you don't have to travel anywhere for it you can just walk out in your backyard or go to your neighborhood park and you know over it's it's pretty close to fourth of july right and yeah. so one of the things that um has happened to me since i've been studying fireflies is i've actually i love fireworks i really sure, do yeah but you know, I've got. I have to now listen to them with like earplugs. I have to watch <laughs> them with earplugs because, you know, fireflies are just so spectacular, and it's something about that silent light mm, show yeah. that's so beautiful. That, um, in contrast, you know, these these human fireworks are nothing compared to that. Right? <laughs> so I, I've sort of started to. I think. I think. I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to watch Firefly. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to watch fireworks displays yeah. anymore. Yeah. Just go out and find a find a field and watch fireflies. Yeah, and we can all use more silence or at least more natural noise in our life. Not this background hum of electronics and motors all the time. And you know, again, what better way to do that than to just immerse yourself in it and see the spectacle as it is intended to be as it evolved. And that's, that's wonderful. And so Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for all of the effort you put into understand these organisms and for all of the effort you put into communicating what you and others have learned about them. I mean, the, the two go hand in hand and the only way people are going to appreciate it is if they can experience it, but also try to understand it and, and share that sense of wonder and you do it so well. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. Thank you so much. You know, it's really my pleasure. Um, it's it's. I feel so lucky to be able, so fortunate to be able to, um, you know, tell people about these amazing insects. If I could, uh, just there's one other thing I'd like to mention, which sure. is that um, if you like plants, you probably like pollinators, yes. and so you probably already know about the Xerces Society which is based in Portland, Oregon, and they do a lot of work on invertebrate conservation. And I'm very, very excited to say that um, for the past couple of years, we've been partnering with them on firefly conservation. Awesome. And so you can go to the Xerces website and there's um, really, really useful uh, publications about conserving fireflies in your backyard, how you can protect fireflies, all freely available on the Xerces website. So check it out. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Xerces. So I'm so happy to see you working with them. But again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it tonight. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and keep up the amazing work. Thanks a lot. You Cheers. too. All right. Fantastic stuff. Folks like Dr. Sarah Lewis are why I do this podcast. It's what keeps me coming back each and every week to make these recordings and put the effort out because they're just so passionate and so fascinating to talk to and the work they're doing is so vital. I thank Dr. Lewis for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and please, please, please go check out her book. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Pick up a copy of the book, check out the Xerces Society, learn what you can do to protect fireflies in your region. It's important and they're just incredible organisms. I can't say enough good things about them. Of course, you can also help support this show by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants where you'll get regular kickbacks. You can also pick up a copy of my book or some customizable merch and some stickers. You can find those links as well over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.